And, and so the series we're going to be working on here is, is entitled uh, Inside Out Living. Um, and, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you're, if you're looking for stuff to do in your, your personal study time, um, in the back of the bulletin, or it might be in the front of the book, um, there's a list of verses for every day of the week. And, and you kind of, I pick those out based on what the sermons are and what they're going to be. And so, like, you can do that. But the other thing you can do is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters. It ain't all that much reading. Um, if you, what was it? I had a fellow tell me if you read the book of James every day for a month, it would change your life. Um, and if that's true of James, I'm sure that the Sermon on the Mount manage it as well. Um, and so that, you know, I encourage you to take a look at these chapters. There's some, some tough content in there. And, and so we're going to be coming at it, and we're going to be be coming at it from the idea of what does it mean as far as how we're supposed to live. And, and I'm going to propose that it's inside out. And where am I starting? I'm, I'm starting with cars this morning. Um, I, I love cars. Uh, not, not the cartoons. Abby makes me watch them, and I don't love that. Um, that's why I love Abby, so that goes a long way. Um, and and I, one of my favorite topics as it relates to cars is, is you have this conversation. And I think every guy in the world has had the conversation about the best car they've ever owned, right? Anybody not have that conversation? Or like the best car ever made, like the dream car, this is what I would love to have. Um, this is the opposite end of the spectrum, right? I was, uh, I was reading the other day, and I was reading about the, the 10 worst cars ever made. Um, and I, I was kind of going through the lists and, and having a look at this. And some of these you know, right? Like, like everybody's seen the DeLorean. That's this bottom left one here, right? What do we know it from? Back to the Back future. To the, Back to the future, right? And the DeLorean, um, it's a neat-looking car. It's stainless steel, right? I mean, it's got all kinds of cool stuff going for it. It's got those gullwing doors to make sure you never park close to anyone because you can't get them open once you're in a tight spot. Um, I, I was reading about it, and, and one of the things that you never hear about in relation to these things is, first off, that stainless steel is really heavy, right? So the DeLorean weighed 2,700 pounds, but it had a 120-horsepower engine. Um, the advertising for this car said you could do um, 0 to 60 in like 8 seconds. Um, in reality, you could do 0 to 60 in 11 seconds, which is about what a VW Beetle from the same year could do. <laughs> this was a car that was beautiful, right? I mean, they are really cool. And some of them even traveled in time, but maybe stomp on that gas and your fumes would outrun you. <laughs> like, that's not the way they're supposed to be. And so as cool of a car as it was, other than it, I mean, like, like I owned a Jaguar, all English cars are the same. I'm here to tell you it had other problems. <laughs> um, but as cool of a car as it was, as awesome as it looked on the outside, on the inside, there wasn't a whole lot of life, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? I, uh, I was driving Larry's, one of Larry's trucks a few weeks ago, we went to, or a few months ago now. We went to Great Falls pick up a refrigerator, and I had not driven a diesel car in, in many, many years, and uh, um, I, it was very different than driving my Xterra, and that resulted in me getting pulled over. <laughs> um, and I don't know, the bits, of, the, the, the cop knew the bits, is, I don't know what that says about them, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but they let us go as a result, so it probably says good things, um, or they met their bits co quota for the, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it was that night and day difference, right? Like, everybody's had a car where you jam on the gas and you hit that hill coming out of Haver, and, and you think, man, should I push a little? 
or, or you feel like you're in the Flintstone garlic peddling. Um, the other one that I, I found, the 1980 uh, uh, Corvette California edition, right? That, that's a Stingray. And they look cool, right? But it was the year that they put too small of an engine in it, and they were trying to meet California emission standards, um, which are incredibly strict. And it was just, it was a dog, and it didn't even come with a manual transmission. It was an automatic, a three-speed automatic. It was, it was, it was an embarrassment um, um, to the Corvette genre. It was an awful car, right? It was all flash and no, and no light, right? Beautiful on the outside, really dead on the inside. Um, anybody ever own a Fiero? Or <laughs> your hand too high, it's embarrassing. It's <laughs> um, the Fiero was put out, uh, anybody remember Magnum PI? Oh, what was the car in Magnum? Ooh, the red Ferrari, right? Which nobody in, the, in real life can afford. And so, like, they put out the Fiero sort of as a, you know, the Magnum PI light car, and that was really the marketing decision they made. Um, and the problem, of course, being that, like, the, the, the Ferrari was fast, and the Fiero was a Fiero. <laughs> um, and, and the other big problem being that a lot of them like, had this bad habit of just catching fire. Um, <laughs> Fiero. I'm not making that up. Like Every year, they had a real problem where like, the push rods would break, and oil would leak into places it wasn't supposed to go, and the engine would like, or be behind you, so you <laughs> get this great effect of fire behind you. It's the only time you ever thought you were moving fast in the Fiero. Um, uh, the last one I have is a 74 GTO. Anybody ever own a GTO? Oh, I'm envious of all of you who raised your hand. That, that was a car, right? The GTO was known for muscle, right? I mean, it was, it was a big monster, like muscle car. You know, the, the daddy monster car. And in, in 1974, um, American car companies were putting out the Plymouth Duster, right? You know, it's that tiny little pseudo sports car, you know, and uh, uh, the Ford Maverick, um, which, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, these like, but they were, they were small, and they were sporty looking, and they were dual efficient, and so in the 74, like for the GTO model for that year, um, they were trying to figure out a way to make, to make, to make the GTO more fuel efficient, and basically it's a, it's a Ventura. Or, or um, maybe a Nova. Are you guys familiar with the '70s Novas? weren't all that impressive, like stock. Um, it was, it was a really embarrassingly underpowered car. And so you'd pull up with your GTO, and it was like awesome, and it was like tough, and it was totally dead inside because you'd stomp on the gas, and nothing had happened, right? Um, and there are a lot of folks who hit this point in life, like spiritually, where they walk and they look. Good, right? Um, they look like they got it all together, like they got it nailed. Maybe some of you guys know these people, right? These people that, that you're pretty sure that if it rained hard enough, they'd walk across the puddles or the mud in Montana. There are no puddles, um, and then they got it nailed down. But in reality, they're like that that um, that DeLorean, right? They're they're carrying all this weight, but they got no spiritual strength to make it happen. They look good. But inside they're dead. Inside they 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 got nothing alive. Um, and and specifically, I know we're part of the Sermon on the Mount, so I can put my car notes away, a whole page of car notes, um, because I know there's somebody out there who's going to call me on something incorrect, and I'm not going to be able to say anything. Um, um, we're going to start in Matthew 23, actually, 
And, and the reason we're starting here, and we're going to flash back, there's a reason for this. Um, if you want to find it in your Bibles, this is actually NIV. I don't usually preach out of the NIV, but it just sort of moves struck me this week. Because I'm kind of nerdy, I guess. I don't know if anybody cares. Um, so, it starts out, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in, in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help move them. Um, okay, so the Pharisees were this class of religious people. This happens, um, if you go into the Old Testament, this is a little bit of history, I'm going to do my best to make it brief. Um, in the Old Testament, there's this point where God kicks the, the chosen people out of the promised land, Right? He says, I'm tired of seeing you people violate my laws, you're all out of here. And he kicks them out and they go into slavery, exile, to Babylon. And when they come back, this group of religious people starts gathering up and they say, you know what, if we got punished for disobeying the rules, we're going to obey the rules times ten. And then it'll be great, because God will really appreciate us then. You know, we'll work as hard as we can. And, and so it started out with this, you know, be obedient, be obedient, be obedient, so God doesn't squish us. And then they started doing something else. It's called the gloss, if you read in, in journals or in theological works, or the hedge. Um, they started to put up a little bit of extra room around the rules that you're not supposed to break, right? Um, I, I was visiting with someone this week, and, and Abby um, went over and, and was trying to go up their stairs. And I was like, Abby, don't do that. And, and um, Abby kind of didn't want to not go up the stairs. You guys have had a two-year-old maybe, you know what I'm talking about. And so she stood there by the stairs, I'm like, don't do that. And so then she sits down on the stairs and sort of this like, this is okay, right? <laughs> and I'm like, you can sit there, but that's it. And then both her legs are up on the steps. <laughs> and then she's sitting on the second step. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, Abby, move down. And then her both her legs are up on the second step, and I got up, and she ran up the stairs. <laughs> um, and the Pharisees saw this. They said, well, look, if you get too close to breaking the rules, you might end up breaking them. So what we're going to do is we're going to make up extra rules. Not only is it not okay to sit on, you know, not go up the stairs, you can't sit on them, and you can't stand near them, right? Not only is it not okay to blaspheme, but... You can't write out God's whole name anymore. Because if you write it out wrong, that might accidentally be blasphemy. So we're not going to go anywhere near that, right? Um, and you know what? What if you use a pen to write out just the you know, just part of God's name, and then that pen writes something like dirty? Well, that's not okay. What if God considers that blasphemy? So if you write God's name, you have to throw the pen away when you're done. Really? <laughs> and after a little while, it becomes so oppressive. That, that people couldn't manage it anymore. And it, it became things like, well, you know what? On the Sabbath, you can only walk X number of miles. Well, what if you had something you really need to do? Well, tough. And some people would then like set up a tent in the yard the day before the Sabbath, and they'd sleep in their tent. And then they'd get up in the morning, and they'd take the tent down and move, you know, and go how far they could go, and they'd put the tent back up and lay down for a minute, and then get out and, oh, that's my home, and now I can keep going. So they found ways around it. Um, the most strict group, there was a group of people called the Essenes, right? And they, they're the ones who collected the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe you've heard of them. The Essenes wouldn't go to the bathroom on the Sabbath. 
Because they said, what if, and I'm not making this up, what if it's a really tough trip to the bathroom? That might be considered work. And so we're going to set up this rule so you don't even get close to breaking the rules of making God mad. This is the Pharisees. Everybody got some perspective here? And they still do some of this nonsense, by the way. There's books out there that explain how to obey the Sabbath in space. So if you're on the International Space Station, um, and you and it's the Sabbath, how do you know what day is the Sabbath? And really? Do you think God cares that much? I think this is actually where Jesus is going. He says, listen, it's okay to follow the law, because the Pharisees are sitting in Moses' seat. They're giving out the law. They've assumed this position. Right? So they're giving out the law to everyone. They're making sure you know what it is. But you know what? Don't do what they do because they're not obeying it. They're not living out this set of rules. They're just tossing them out. Um, and it is sort of fun when you can give out rules and not obey them yourself, right? Can I get an amen from every parent in the room? <laughs> it's true. I didn't. I thought it was when I was a kid. My parents insisted, no, we followed these rules too. And now I'm an adult and I know that was a lie. Um, Hear that, teenagers? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Alright, so Jesus continues. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, phylacteries um, wide and the tassels on their garments long. The phylacteries, and I should have practiced that a little more. I practiced it for about ten minutes. I thought, well, I got it and I pronounced it wrong. Um, there's this line in the Old Testament where it talks about putting God's law on your forehead. And you see, there's still Jews that do this today. They wear a little box with the Ten Commandments in it around their, on their foreheads, right? And so, um, and this is like this obedience to this song, you know, wear God's law on your forehead. Anyway, um, and so he says, look, they do all this stuff for show, so they, they have these huge boxes attached to their forehead to show they have the law there. Everybody noticed, and there was a law regarding tassels on garments, so they had really long ones, so everybody knew, hey, I'm really obeying this law. Check out my holy blade. And it, it was ridiculous. Um, their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue, meaning they were the guys who had the best spot everywhere. So everybody could notice how awesome they were, right? Anybody know anybody like this? Don't point. Especially at me. <laughs> I mean it. Honey. Um, <laughs> um, Everything they did, they did for show. And so Jesus says, look, they talk about these laws. They put all this stuff out there. And yet, most of what they're doing is all about people noticing how good they are. Most of what they're doing is outward. It's show. It's like that stainless steel body that's overweight on the DeLorean that makes it so you practically have to push it to get it off the line. Right? It's so heavy that their spiritual death inside them can't move forward. There's nothing there. And so this huge weight, they don't pick it up themselves. So they hand out this law, and they don't even bother with it. <coughs> they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others, meaning they, they want that recognition. They want people to say, hey, you are, you know, you are awesome, you are holy, because it's all about them. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees is who Jesus is going after there. They disseminate the law, they create heavy burdens in these extra rules, and they do their good works for attention, which I apparently cut off at the bottom of the slide. Um, so these are the people Jesus is talking to out of the gate. Everybody with me? Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We move on. We're jumping ahead about ten verses. If you're following along, you're going to be like, what happened? That's what happened. 
Um, Jesus does this talk where he does a series of woe statements. We're not going to look at all of them. We're going to look at three of them right in the middle. Uh, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So what they were doing was, there were rules regarding how much of your stuff you had to give to the church, right? And that's actually where we get the idea of tithe. Tithe refers to 10%, and in the Old Testament you would give, you know, 10% to this, and 10% to that, and 10% to this. The Old Testament tithe is actually like 30%. It's a huge amount of money, I'm just saying. Um, the, and it was part of a ceremonial observance and all this. And, and these guys were so careful with it that when they got their spice garden, do you keep a big spice garden? I should ask Marla. <laughs> no! I mean, they, they, the Derbys have a garden so big that they forget they have things out there. And they find, and they find Derga potatoes. <laughs> um, just out of the blue, holy mess, we had parsnips, right? Like, this is awesome. We had extra stuff, and we didn't even know we had it because we have so much of a garden. But you don't grow that much like spices, right? You don't grow that much dill and cumin and all that other stuff. It doesn't make sense. But these guys are so careful with what they give to the church that they parse it down to the smallest amount. And we obey this perfect. Everybody see this? Look at this. We, we're giving our cinnamon this month. How awesome are we? But they don't care about justice. And they don't care about mercy. And they're not faithful. Um, we're going to see a little bit of that like probably next week. Okay, We're going to come around to that um, with some of the regulations regarding... Um, um, well, we'll get to that. Anyway, um, they, they neglected the law. And so they would obey the very letter of it. But they didn't care about what God really cares about. Everybody with me? Um, and Jesus compares it to straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel. Right? Like, making sure that everything you eat is just clean enough that there isn't even gnats around it. This is the Middle East. It's very fly-covered. You know, um, and, and, you know, they wouldn't even eat that much unclean stuff. But in reality, like, the stuff that they're really letting by is like a camel compared to a gnat. Meaning, God cares a gnat's worth about your spices. He cares a camel's worth about your treatment of the people around you and where your heart is. Everybody with me? Everybody asleep yet? Uh, woe to you teachers of the law. See, a woe statement would be like a, a prophetic pronouncement in the Old Testament. So there's one after the other after the other. So this is a separate like line, but um, it's in the same speech. Uh, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the dish, and the outside will be clean. So our dishwasher doesn't work very well, right? And, and so like I'll, I'll pull stuff out of the dishwasher, and the outside will be perfect, but the inside will have cereal stuck to it. And then there's always this moment where you think, well, the outside's clean, maybe Jess won't notice. And I slip into the stack. That's true. <laughs> Um, and, and you think, oh, well, but in reality, you're going to eat out of the inside of the bowl, right? This is the part that matters. Um, and Jesus is saying, look, you know, they, they would pay attention to these cleanliness laws, okay? And they had really ridiculous cleanliness laws. And, and the Pharisees took it to the tenth degree. And he's saying, look, you spend so much time worrying about washing your hands and everything else, keeping the outside of this stuff looking good, right? Like your DeLorean. But inside you're dead. Inside you're filthy. 
Um, if you clean up the inside of you, the outside will follow shortly thereafter, right? I can't be holy in my heart and filthy on the outside because what's in me is going to grow out of me. Um, to kind of stretch the analogy in a different direction, if I plant jalapenos, what's coming out of the ground? Jalapenos, right? Maybe parsnips, who knows? I don't know where they come from. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to have to apologize to you guys later, I'm sure. <laughs> Jess will make you a pot, it would be great. Um, <laughs> um, the outside of you isn't as important as the heart. Everybody with me? You have to clean this stuff up first, first, first. Um, which is why the Pharisees are failing. Because they didn't care about the inside. They cared about the outside. Look at me and how holy I am. Um, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So if a Jewish person touched a dead body or a tomb, they were considered ritually unclean, and you couldn't just walk into the temple then. You had to do a cleansing thing, and you had to wait seven days, all right? There was a cleanliness law. And Jesus is saying, like, like, and actually they would paint tombs frequently so that you wouldn't be walking along and run into it accidentally, right? Oh, didn't see it there. Um, they wanted you to know where these things were, so they paint them. Um, so you wouldn't accidentally become unclean. These guys looked beautiful, but they were dead. Um, they're kind of like reverse zombies, right? Whitewashed tombs. Um, inside dead, outside beautiful. Um, or like Chevy's, I don't know. Anyway, I really want to make that joke, and I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, so Jesus is pointing out the disconnect between what they appear to be um, and what they are, you know, what they actually are. And, and, and I got this, this piece of fruit, right? Like, is it a peach, I think, or a tangerine or something? And do you ever get this where you pick out a piece of fruit and it's beautiful? Or it happens to me with walnuts. You'll get that walnut, and it looks good. And you'll crack it open, and on the inside, the inside is dead. Rotting. Um, and this is an easy place to end up. This is actually, there's a huge chunk of my life where I was this guy, right? Like I was early in ministry career where I'm, I'm you know, convinced I have to look perfect. You know what I'm talking about? Because as a minister, if you don't look perfect, people might call you out on it. Um, the problem is that when that happens, it's really easy to carry around sin because who are you going to confess to without revealing that the inside is rotten too? Everybody with me? Um, as long as the inside is bad and you can't let it out, you're stuck. And so one of the central ideas I'm going to present today is um, we all sin, right? Anybody not sin this week? Anybody willing to lie about it this morning? <laughs> Anybody sitting right now? <laughs> if we pretend it's okay, if we pretend that we're better than we are, if we pretend that it's not like it is, we can never make it better, right? Because we've got to keep it all swallowed up and we can never work to fix it. Confession is the first step to fixing it. But we're going to come around to that. Um, Matthew 5. Finally, we make it to the Sermon on the Mount. This is an earlier sermon. Jesus stands up, and one of the first things he does, he does the Beatitudes, he does um, some talk about the law, and then 520. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
I mean, he's after these guys out of the gate. And people are hearing this, and they're like, wait a minute, I know the scribes. They're church people, right? They're holy, they're good. Part of what Jesus is referring to is, the outside ain't the same as the inside. They are not who they appear to be. They're like, like, um, oh. And the other part of this is, that even if they were as good as they appear to be, nobody can be good enough to earn their way to heaven. Which is why we need Jesus in the first place, right? Why we celebrate Easter. Because Jesus came and he took punishment for all the sin we commit, right? But being right with Christ, which is like part of making him the Lord of our lives, is being right with him. Um, it's not about looking like you've got it all down. It isn't. It's not about looking like you're perfect. It's not about your neighbor thinking that you're holy. Um, it, it's actually funny, I went golfing with a youth group kid years ago, and uh, we, were, we were playing along, and this fellow comes along, and he's playing a lot faster than us, and he jumped into our game, because it was just two weeks, hey, can I just play with you guys? And so we played about 12 holes with him, and the first, like, five or six holes, and I got a 16-year-old kid with him, he's a young guy, and this guy is swearing up a storm and talking about his personal conquests, I don't know how to say that right. Um, I mean, he was very rough, especially with, like, a young kid there, right? And, and eventually, like, after five or six holes, he says, so what do you guys do? I said, well, obviously, he's a high school student, and I'm a minister. Guess what changed? <laughs> All of a sudden, he was talking about the Bible. <laughs> That's sort of funny, isn't it? All of a sudden, we stopped swearing. Who was he kidding? But in reality, we all carry that rock, right? Pretending isn't going you know, to make it better. We're right before God because the inside matches the outside. And if we pretend that it's a way that it isn't, we're stuck. There ain't no getting out of it then. Uh, we're going to jump ahead. Matthew 5, 21 to 24. You have heard it. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder will be liable in court. Everybody get this? One of the commandments, number five, right? Don't kill your neighbor. Anybody failing at this? <laughs> no? Neighbor means everybody, not just the people who live next door to you, right? Ten mile over. We all got it down, right? It's an easy one. Actually, this is probably one of the easiest ones, unless you have children. Um, <laughs> and whoever commits it uh, will be liable in court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brothers, you are good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fires of hell. All right, what's he saying here? Well, he starts off with a little bit of silliness because these people are listening and they're like, hey, if I'm angry at a guy, I'm going to go to court. What court in the world is going to convict me for being angry? Really? And so there's a bit of a joke here, right? And then he says, if you say you're good for nothing, right, which, which every father has said that, anyway. Um, <laughs> um, if you say you're good for nothing, um, you know, the Supreme Court, we're going to bring you all the way up to the Sanhedrin and, like, hold trial with you. But really? Who doesn't call people names sometimes? Right? It happens. But then he takes the step further. Because the people are listening to this and they're thinking, no, you wouldn't really go to court. You wouldn't really be convicted. These aren't things. And then he takes the next step and he says, you fool. Now, fool is a word that's like lost all of its meaning in history. To call somebody a fool would be to say, oh, you're wrong religiously and you're wrong personally. It was essentially one of the most insulting things you could say to a person. Right? 
Um, I, I can't think of an equivalent in American language. Put that into perspective. Like we have our seven, what was it, George Carlin, seven words you don't say anywhere, uh, except on stage while you're doing stand up comedy, apparently. I don't know. Um, yeah, none of those is on scale with you fool, right? Like, like it's, it, it, it's like slapping a guy in the face. It's, it's times ten. It's the most offensive thing you can do in this culture. Um, and Jesus says, listen, if you're treating people like that, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Why? Because you're not supposed to talk like that. There are some people who will read this passage and say, these are new rules that are being added. I'm going to propose a slightly different perspective. This is about inside-out living. Right? If I manage to not kill anyone, but I'm a total jerk, and I mistreat everybody who comes near me, am I still obeying the law the way God wants me to? Well, no. Anybody know anybody like that? Somebody who, like, like just you walk into the same room with them and you sort of cringe a little and you think, oh my gosh, I have to deal with this person. Don't point at me. <laughs> um, it, 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 I can only use that joke, and I'll stop that one now. Um, it, it's so like like it's easy to, to obey some of these laws, but anger tends to snowball, right? And it's easy to become the guy who carries so much anger that it consumes you, and it becomes a dominant element of your interaction with others. If you're going to harbor that, you might as well be killing people. That's what Jesus is saying. Because the outside of the cup, the obedience to the law, looks good, but if you're carrying around that kind of resentment, that kind of bitterness, that kind of hatred. You aren't right before God. Because outside, you might look like a DeLorean, but inside, you're a VW. Or worse, right? You're a French car. Um, so, moving on, he goes on to say, um, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go... First be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. This is a sideways way of saying, first off, God's not going to accept your offerings if you're wrong with your brother, right? The second way of saying this is, which is a better act of worship? Obviously, we're supposed to worship, right? But if I'm standing there worshiping, but I can't worship God by changing my heart, by making my inside not rotten, how's that going to fly? It's not. God isn't tricked, and God isn't to be mocked. He knows a man's heart, right? Um, and so, worshiping God is a lifestyle that begins with forgiving others. It begins with loving others. It begins with not carrying around bitterness and using nasty words to knock other people down, even though I do it all the time, so it's, I'm a Pharisee, I'll just own it. Um, but I'm just teasing. Um, you can say that, it makes it okay. Um, you've heard it said that you will not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is another, um, I have never cheated on my wife. I've never dated another woman. I've never, etc., right? If I sit down and start visiting the adult websites, I'm not cheating on my wife. Am I honoring her? Honey, if I start doing that, am I in trouble? <laughs> Just a little bit? Ooh, I'm dead, right? Um, here's the deal. Um, if we try to ignore a certain element of our sin by saying, at least I'm not, then we fail to really live by what God is calling us to. This isn't a new law, by the way. This is a heart condition. Um, this is a condition that reflects 
in who we are to the very core of us. And it becomes really hard to obey that law if I carry around rot inside of me, right? If the inside of me is rotten through, um, then the outside carrying this law becomes harder and harder and harder. If I hate people, if I carry around rage constantly, violence becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Um, if I carry around lust constantly, resisting temptation becomes a lot harder. Like, these are things that feed and grow into terrible stuff. Um, so what do we do about it? How do we apply this? Um, first off, we don't pretend to be a DeLorean if we ain't, right? Well, no, wait, hold on. That example, I guess. We don't pretend to be a Corvette, you know, if we ain't. We acknowledge who we really are. Um, and we acknowledge it to other people. Uh, there's an AA line, you're only as sick as your secrets. Um, and this is a spiritual truth. The more I carry stuff and the more I hide it, the more the inside of me rots. And the more I die, and the more I can't carry the weight of the outside of me. Um, shame and guilt eventually just chew me up. Um, so we begin with not pretending, with confessing, with being open, being real. And that is the hardest part, right? Anybody ever carry a hard secret and the first time you said it out loud, it was the worst thing you ever had to do? It was a little like throwing up. You know what I'm talking about? And then it's a little better. Um, part of that is because we're obeying this basic thing that God tells us, confess. The more you confess, the less bad it is. The more you clean that out. And the more you're able to be accountable, the more you're able to be connected, the more you're able to walk the way God intended you to. Um, that's the beginning. The second thing is to recognize this is about heart condition, not obedience. And so Paul says in Romans 7, you know, that he struggles with sin, but in his heart he's got spirit, right? And so inwardly he obeys, even though outwardly he struggles. Um, when we're made new in Christ, everybody with me? So when I believe in Jesus and I'm a new creation, um, the inside of me reflects Jesus. The outside of me may struggle, but the inside of me is saved and pure and exactly the way God intended it to be. And then the work is magical. I think I've said that again recently. Uh, the third thing I'm going to offer is um, we change our hearts. How do you change your heart? You don't make a fruit unrotten. Well, you do it through Jesus. And you do it through talking to Jesus, right? You do it through spending time with Jesus. You do it through confessing to God and to other people. Um, you do it through fellowshipping with people around you, right? Um, it's really easy, by the way. To, um, I found this, I worked in factories, and, and I found that my language tended to get worse when I worked in factories. You guys understand what I'm talking about? Is there any guy who didn't experience this at some point? Um, or I worked at Bachelor Children's Home, and we had all these drug addicts, and they all like swear every other word. Um, and, and, and it gets really easy to start swearing along with them because it's there all the time. Fellowship puts us with people who challenge us to raise the bar instead of lowering it. So we spend time with other believers. Um, we worship. It is so hard. It is so hard to carry around sin and anger when you're worshiping God. Um, and actually, when you confess and then worship and recognize that Jesus died for us and made us pure, that's as good as it gets. Um, and then the last thing, and this is, this is a Romans line, right? Capturing every heart, making it captive to God. Um, Romans 5 actually also says, uh, um, talks about this idea of being, do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed of it by the renewing of your mind. This is how you renew your mind. You capture thoughts. You say, hey, I'm thinking this. 
Lord, this is not what I should be thinking. Lord, help me put this away. Lord, help me forgive this person. How many of you guys got a little bit of anger at somebody you haven't seen in over a year? <laughs> really, just three of you? Because I bet there's more. <laughs> How about five years? How about ten years? How about somebody who isn't even alive anymore? Talk about an anger that doesn't even make sense, right? And it just rots you. Being angry at someone is a little like buying rat poison to deal with the rats in your attic and then sit in the living room, pouring milk over in a bowl, and eating it like cereal, right? If it ain't killing them, it's killing you. And it's not killing you physically, it's killing you spiritually. The way that we make this new is by holding that stuff captive and becoming different. It's all a process. And literally, it's just becoming a part of a family, right? Conforming ourselves into this family of God. My challenge for you this week is you go out of here. Did I have another slide? No, I didn't think I did. Um, my challenge for you guys is you go out of here. Larry, if you want to come up, um, is uh, and we have communion today, which I forgot, so I'm going to not challenge you just yet. Um, when we take communion, uh, what we're remembering, uh, when we, and I'm going to call my communion guys up as well, uh, what we're remembering, what we're celebrating, is this act that Jesus what, took on, this thing that Christ did that makes it possible for us to be made new, right? With his shed blood, we're made pure. With his broken body, we're made pure. Our insides begin to match our outside. The whole world changes. Um, does it actually do that when we take communion? No. It's a reflection of a spiritual reality. What Jesus did on Easter, or on Good Friday and on Easter, um, I do it backward every week. <laughs> this is the worst communion service I've managed to do in a little while. Um, on the Thursday before, he took bread and he broke it. He distributed it to the disciples. He said, this is my body, um, broken for you, for the remission of your sins. Um, this is literally Jesus' body, broken to make us whole and new, um, to bring us back from the, from the edge. If you're a guest with us, uh, all we require in the Church of God is that you have faith in Christ and take communion with us. If you're a person of faith, um, we're going to pray, and then we'll start. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would put our hearts in the right place with a little bit of confusion and, and everything else, Lord, that you would help us focus on you and, and our heart condition. Help us to be the way that you intended us to be this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen. Help us drink his cup. He said, this is my blood, um, shed for you, for the remission of your sins. And this is a sign of the new covenant, which is forever. Um, as we take the, as we take the grape, you know, the grape drink, the grape juice, I, I pray that you would reflect on that blood shed for you, on the, on the making new that you experience in Christ, on the new life that you find at the heart of something that was